0: Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just a couple of verses. We'll look at three verses, matter of fact, starting in verse 16. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, I, I wanted to take a look at these verses. Like I said, I was having a little bit difficult uh, time in our study. But, you know, we just come off the hills of celebrating uh, this holiday Thanksgiving. And I don't know if you know this. It was actually a little bit of a surprise to me. Okay, I don't know how you can have a little bit of a surprise. It's a sur- it was a surprise to me. Um, the last Thursday or the Thursday of the last full week was first recommended to be a time uh, in our nation of giving thanks, setting it aside to give thanks to God Almighty. By who? Who do you think put that forward? Abraham Lincoln, that's one vote. Any other votes? George Washington. Yeah, I didn't know that. George Washington on October 3rd, 1789, he, he put forth the idea of Thanksgiving. It was Abraham Lincoln that made it a holiday. Yeah, but Abraham Lincoln, he wanted to set aside time for the nation to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and to humbly implore God's protection and favor. So in keeping with Thanksgiving, I felt that maybe these were the verses this morning that the Lord would have us look at. This passage of Scripture happens to be found in one of the earliest letters written by Paul the Apostle. It's possible that Galatians was the first letter that Paul wrote, um, but it's thought by many that 1 Thessalonians is actually the first letter that Paul wrote. And it was written just about 20 years after Jesus Christ. Uh, was resurrected. Thessalonica was originally named Therma, you know, because there are a lot of hot springs in this area. Uh, 300 years before Christ, uh, Cassander, the king of Macedonia, renamed Thessalonica, renamed the city to Thessalonica in honor of his wife, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And sometime after Rome uh, had conquered Macedonia in 168 BC, the city was made the capital of the entire province. Right, it was a city that just flourished because of its ideal location, right in the heart of the Roman Empire. It was a a major shipping port on the north uh, west corner of the Aegean Sea, and it enjoyed uh, being on a major trade road from. Rome to Byzantium, and that trade road, that trade route, was called the Ignatian Way. Uh, These things put Thessalonica in direct contact with many other important cities by land as well as by sea. In Paul's day, it was a pretty good-sized city. It had a population of about 200,000. Most were Greeks, uh, but it was also home to many Romans, and there was a strong Jewish population in the city at the time. Too. And yet, because of the citizens of Thessalonica and their background and paganism, I mean, they embraced this pagan culture. And, and there, there was widespread immorality in the city. The church in Thessalonica was established uh, on Paul's second missionary journey. You can uh, read about it in Acts 17. In fact, the, 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 the story is... Uh, really record in the first 15 verses of Acts 17. And, and when you read that, you learn that Paul was only in the city of Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. So maximum, if he shows up on a Sunday and, and leaves, you know, uh, three Sabbaths and some days later, I mean, maximum he's in the city for four weeks. And as a result of his preaching, teaching, and reasoning with the people through the scriptures, proving to them that Jesus is the Messiah, who suffered, died, and rose again according to the scriptures. It says that a great many Greeks in Thessalonica, along with some Jews and a number of prominent women in the city, they placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the risen Savior. And Paul poured into these people just this rich diet of teaching from the word of God, along with just um, you know meaty, heavy-duty doctrinal instruction. Well, as the people welcomed the gospel, uh, you know Paul uh, frequently encountered on his missionary journeys what he encountered in Thessalonica, and that was just open opposition. Uh, his his adversaries considered his teaching to be a threat to their Judaism and their religious status quo. And so they openly opposed Paul. They wanted, they wanted him gone. They, they determined to drive him out of town. So what did they do? They, they got together and they strategized how they might get rid of him. And interestingly enough, they resorted to the, the same methods, the same tactics used against Jesus Christ. They gathered together a group of troublemakers and made false accusations regarding Paul and what he was doing. And as a result... Of that, Paul ended up leaving the city, um, you know, certainly much sooner than he probably would have wanted to. But amazingly, in just this very short period of time that he was there in that city, he plants this church and he instructed this church in very deep doctrinal issues. And he appointed elders and he saw many people saved and discipled and raised up for the work of the ministry. And one thing I think that happens frequently when we read the Bible is that we forget that these letters were written to real people with real problems in a world that wasn't very friendly to Christians. And surprisingly, I mean, things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Christians today actually faced some of the same problems and difficulties that believers in the New Testament times struggled with. You know, there, there's really nothing new under the sun. Well, 1 Thessalonians can be described as a letter from a spiritual father to his children. Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this letter is also addressed to the church uh, today. You know, it's written to us as well. And it's written to encourage us who call Calvary Chapel Truckee home. Now, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica for, you know, multiple reasons. Uh, First, he was writing to address this falsehood that had circulated among the believers uh, by those who opposed Paul. You know, Paul's enemies were attacking his character, saying in essence that he was really just a hypocrite, you know. And not only was he a hypocrite, he was just, you know, also just about greedy gain. He was just a charlatan who was after uh, their money. You know, the only reason reason he preached um, religion is just for selfish gain. So Paul, in this letter, he seeks to reassure the church of his love for them. Right? And he reminds them of his conduct, conduct while he was with them. He reminds them of his honesty in ministry. And in this letter, Paul portrays the church as a family. I think it's interesting that the word brother or brethren is found 19 times in the in these uh, you know in this short little book. You know, and and we're to look at each other as family. We're family. We're to, as Jesus said, love one another, right? So Paul sought to address this weakness in the church back then, which was really a lack of respect for uh, the leadership in the church. They failed to honor and respect the leaders within the church. And Paul basically instructs them, excuse me, that there's a need for order and respect in the church. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. He says, and we urge you, brethren, you have that slide? 1 Thessalonians five, twelve, and 13. It's the first one in the list. Well, 1 Thessalonians five, twelve, and 13, you can look at it in your Bible. It says, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love <clears throat> for their work's sake. But be at peace among yourself. I mean, the lack of respect in, of, for spiritual leadership is a primary reason for fighting and arguing in churches, resulting in painful and hurtful splits. But to be completely fair, hey, guess what? There are many pastors and leaders in many churches today that don't deserve our respect. They, they don't deserve to be followed. You know, they water down the the gospel and reject the inerrancy of Of the scriptures. You know, they don't live a life of prayer and they have no concern for the lost. There are plenty of of pastors and leaders within the church today that do just see uh, you know, and the ministry is an easy paycheck. You know, the ministry is a job in their eyes instead of a a calling. You know, they're false teachers seeking greedy gain, seeking uh, to fleece the sheep. You know, they see the sheep as an avenue of financial enrichment. And, and people today, because of this, you know what? There's a sour taste in the mouth of people today. And people are willing to speak against the hypocrisy in the church and the hypocrisy in its leaders in the church. You know, they often call uh, pastors hypocrites, just looking for selfish gain. And, and, and again, yeah, there is hypocrisy in the church, but it's not universally true you know what? There are more good pastors to be found in the church than um, bad pastors, right? But when these things are bantered around, whether true or false, what happens is it casts this cloud, you know, of discouragement, doubt, and depression upon the faithful. And the temptation is to give in and to give up. Pastors are not to demand respect. They're to command respect through their dedication to the Word of God, their dedication to the church, and a life that's marked with selfless service. We need more pastors in the church that are are living their lives like that today. And we're to honor and support those who are, are serving faithfully. Another reason Paul writes this letter was to reaffirm and ground the believers in the doctrines of faith which he had previously given to them. There was some confusion in the church, particularly uh, the prophecies that touched on the return of Christ. You know, I mean, is the coming of Christ Christ near? Is the church going to go through the tribulation before Jesus' return? Are there any other things that need to happen before Jesus can come for his church? I mean, these are the kind of questions that were running through the church of Thessalonica then. And, you know, just like today. There's a lot of confusion regarding Bible prophecy in the end times. And because of this confusion, pre- people are frequently, uh, you know, uh, I think that they kind of default to this position of, you know, it just doesn't matter that much. So what do they do is they throw out uh, eschatology and they just begin to live their life one day at a time, ignoring the signs of the times, the times that we're in with with little to no regard for eternity. So in regards to biblical prophecy and the return of Jesus Christ, Paul writes to the church, both then and today, seeking to correct this confusion in the church. These are the things that we find in this letter, 1 Thessalonians. The blessing to be found, though, in this little book is the message of the rapture of the church right? Jesus is coming for his bride to take her away so that she will be, so that we will be where he always is, right? In fact, if you look closely, each chapter in this book uh, ends with a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Paul saw this doctrine of Jesus' soon return is so important to the church. It wasn't something that, you know, we just talk about. We, you know, we discuss it back and forth and that's as far as we go with it. It was something to encourage us, right? So that we would live a life with an eye to the future, right? With an expectation that Jesus could come at any time. We're to live our lives in a way that counts. For eternity. And again, Paul writes this letter to us. To encourage us today. You know that the day of Christ is so much closer. So much closer in these 2,000 years. Since Paul wrote this letter. Right? We're to live with the view of the soon return of Jesus Christ for his church. Shining through every aspect of our lives. Right? We must all live in light of his return right? And the hope in the, uh, of the rapture is to have a purifying influence on the church, you know, on our lives, leading us to sanctification. And sanctification just means that we're to be set apart for the specific purposes of God. You know, the very purposes that He has ordained for us to walk in. Another reason Paul writes this letter is to encourage the church to live lives of purity. Paul writes to them to stress the need for a personal and practical holiness in their lives. Uh, in the midst of a pagan culture like Thessalonica, I mean, it was just rampant sexual sin, you know, and, and um, you know, it was full of conduct that was unbecoming uh, believers, right? And, and... Uh, you know, it was, it was embraced, and it was promoted, right? Again, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, as well as us today, to encourage us as believers to live holy lives. We must keep in mind that the city of Thessalonica then, it was filled with all kinds of temptations uh, to sin and to compromise. Right? Sexual sin was widespread, not even remotely condemned by the majority of the population, just like it is in our culture today. Paganism was just the norm in the Gentile world in uh, Paul's day. And today we're seeing this resurgence of paganism in our culture, right? Uh, witchcraft, uh, worship of nature, um, you know, sexual immorality— I mean, it's every place in our culture today. And people think nothing of it. It's just normal, right? Paul writes to the Church of Thessalonica to emphasize the need to live a life of of purity. And we need to emphasize this in our lives also, right? It's not easy to live a life of purity today. I mean, the promotion of, of sexual sin is every place. I mean, immorality, infidelity is just glamorized, You know, in almost every place, if not every place, almost every movie and television program, lying and cheating and murder and greed and adultery. I mean, that's the core theme of our entertainment industry. And, and, And you know what? Today, homosexuality is presented as a natural and healthy expression of sexuality. And believe it or not, uh, the fact is this, kids today are encouraged to experiment with same-sex relationships. Uh, if you don't, then they're viewed as the ones that are abnormal or uh, strange. You know, people will look at uh, kids trying to live a life of purity today and say, hey, everybody's doing it. What's wrong with you? You know, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we need a personal, practical an uncompromising holiness in our lives. Now, another reason Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, the, the church began to experience some pretty severe persecution. It tends to breed the temptation, persecution does. It breeds the temptation just to give in to the discouragement, just to, you know, throw your hands up, to quit, to compromise, you know. So Paul writes to encourage those who are hanging in there, In the face of the hardships, not to give in to the discouragement, to persevere, to stand fast, to maintain a strong witness for Jesus Christ. Just as the church in Thessalonica was facing persecution, you know, we're seeing a rise in persecution directed towards believers today. Speaking out about abortion or homosexuality or any other type of sexual sin, I mean, it's quickly becoming viewed as hate speech in our culture. You know, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, taking an unwavering stand for God nowadays is often perceived as offensive. And people today are no longer afraid of spreading rumors and false accusations about believers within the church. And again, It's extremely vital for us to understand that Paul writes this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Church of Thessalonica. But the Holy Spirit has intended this letter to be addressed to us, to the faithful church in 2022, to to Calvary Chapel Truckee, right? To encourage uh, the church as a whole to stand firm in the faith, right? And to maintain a strong witness for Jesus Christ. Now, that's the background for 1 Thessalonians. That's the background. And I think the background of the book, even even on the cursory level that I've just laid it out, I think for some people in the church today, it could maybe still be too much, right? I think a lot of people, they just want to know what God's will is for them. And honestly, I frequently just fall in that camp. You know, Lord, just tell me what you want from me so I can focus on it and so that I can be about your will. And it's here at the very end of this little letter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul closes with a few exhortations, and it spells out the will of God for us very simply, very succinctly for each of us as believers. First Thessalonians five sixteen, rejoice always. Seventeen, pray without ceasing. Eighteen, in everything, give thanks. For this is the wo- the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In spite of all that the people of Thessalonica were experiencing, in spite of all the things that we're facing today, Paul uh, would say that we're to rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And in everything, give thanks because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These three things are to be essential in the life of every believer, right? Our lives are to be marked by, at the very least, these three characteristics, right? Make no mistake about it. Uh, the entire letter, 1 Thessalonians, along with the rest of the Bible, lays out, uh, you know, much of God's will for us, if not all of it, the general will. He has a specific will for you and me individually, but the general will of God is laid out in this letter, 1 Thessalonians. But I think if we boil it all down, you'll find that these three things are what makes for a happy, healthy thriving church, right? Verse 16, rejoice always. And the King James Version translates this verse, rejoice evermore. In the New Living Translation, uh, this verse is always be joyful. Paul says it this way to the church of Philippi, Philippians 4, 4. We don't have any verses? Oh, okay. Well, Philippians 4, 4, you're familiar with it rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The word rejoice literally means to joy and then to rejoy. That's what rejoice means, right? It's to be a constant, consistent attitude of rejoicing the Lord. And that will translate into a happy, joyful, healthy Christian. Right? True Christianity is exciting. It's exhilarating. It's stirring. It's not something that's down and dreary and depressing. I mean, sometimes you see people in the church, it looks like they've just been baptized in lemon juice. I mean, they got this scowl on their face and they're all dour and frowning and negative. They just look unhappy and to see them, to listen to them, I mean, it's painful. It's like watching a kid get underwear for Christmas. It's like taking a cold shower. I mean, there's nothing fun or refreshing or exciting about it. But for many people, I mean, they think that's what religion is supposed to look like. Right? You can't be joyful and happy if you're serious about God. And you know what? That's not attractive. Right? It's not what Jesus wants for his church. Right, I'd venture to say that Jesus was filled with the greatest amount of joy, the greatest amount of gladness. If for no other reason the scriptures say regarding the Messiah, Psalm 45, 7, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Man, I can promise you, if Jesus looked depressed, you know, sat all the time walking around with just a woe was me, fallen countenance, you know, none of the children would have wanted to come to him. You know, it was the little children that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem during his triumphal entry, you know, uh, crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, right? Parents would, uh, would have never brought their little kids to Jesus if that's the way he looked. It's all, boo. You know, to be blessed. I mean, they brought their kids to Jesus to bless them. You know, and when they did it, it wasn't like placing your kid on Santa's lap, right? You know, where you lay your kid on this lap of this bearded stranger while their hearts fill with terror and they're just screaming and crying, squirming, trying to get away. No, kids came to Jesus and he'd scoop them up in his arms and he'd bless them. And they were comfortable in his arms. They were comfortable with him. They were willing to to accept him picking them up and loving on them, you know, because he was so filled with joy. Someone might say, well, what is there really to rejoice about? You know, I mean, you said it yourself, the world is filled with ungodly people and false religion, not to mention the violence and the crime running wild in the streets. And you know, it's just getting worse, right? Well, Well, Jesus said to his disciples, to his followers, and he would say it to you and I, he said, if for no other reason we're to rejoice because our names are written in the in heaven. You know, do you understand that today we're a day closer to heaven? I mean, in my mind I'm marking off days. You know? Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and we're headed to heaven. Do you understand that when the Lord comes, we're going to see him face to face? Yeah, amen. And and all those who love his appearing, he's going to give a crown of righteousness to them? Man, I can't wait. And at his coming, all of our sorrows will turn to joy. You know, to hear Jesus say to all of us who have endured hardship, who have persevered through discouragement, who stood fast in the persecution and maintain a strong witness for Jesus Christ in light of this perverse generation, to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I mean, that alone is worthy to rejoice over. Right? I plan on hearing that, and I'm rejoicing over it. You know, if we were to suffer a lifetime of poverty and hardship, persecution, disease, mistreatment, rejection from others, this side of heaven, the joy of hearing Jesus say, well done, that alone would make it all worthwhile. Right? That alone would make rejoicing in all the hardships that we face our reasonable act of worship, right? We're not given the liberty to rejoice in just the good times. We're told to rejoice always, not just in the happy times, but also in the difficult and the hard times. Our joy is to be the result of being securely anchored in an unchanging God, right? Right? It's not based on our circumstances. Circumstances are ever-changing, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He sees the difficulties that you're going through. He knows the trials that you're facing. He loves you um, and, and will see you through to the end of those trials. Right? Joy is the feeling of delight which rises from the possession of present good or from the anticipation of future happiness, right? In both respects, as Christians, we have abundant reasons of constant joy, right? We have the the weight of guilt and shame lifted from us. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have the promise of God that he's with us and he's never gonna leave us, that he's working all things together for our good. And we have the promise and hope of heaven. Again, it's all a reason to rejoice and to rejoice always. But honestly, joy, I don't think is something that we can drum up in our lives, right? I don't think it's something that we can manufacture in our lives. I, th- I think uh, that we'll experience joy in our lives, though, to the same degree that we surrender to the Holy Spirit, right? To the same degree that we allow God to reign in our lives, that we allow that free reign in our lives, because joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's something that God wants to work into our lives, but it comes through faith and surrender to Him. In revealing God's will for each of us individually and as a uh, a church, Paul also says that we're to pray without ceasing. We're to be a praying church. We're to be a praying people. And we can never lose sight that prayer is a privilege granted to each one of us right? But this verse, I think, is often misunderstood and then just summarily dismissed because people, I I think, I hear it frequently. How is it possible to pray without ceasing? How how is it possible possible to be continually on my knees? You know, uh, if I do that, I would get nothing done all day. Well, you know, it's not a command to be constantly praying, but it is a command to be continually maintaining a constant attitude of prayer, right? To be walking and talking with the Lord as we go throughout our days, right? It speaks of maintaining continuous fellowship with the Lord as we walk through our days. God isn't asking, nor is he wanting from us just vain repetition, you know, just a lot of words, you know, from us when we pray. True prayer is an attitude of the heart right? An expression of our heart. When our heart's desire is to commune with our risen Savior, we'll be praying all day long. Praying for others and ourselves uh, as the Spirit leads us to intercede. You know, I I have a list in my Bible. I'd be happy to show it to you if you think it's not true, but I have a list in my Bible. Everybody in our church, I have a list in my heart everybody in the church. You know, as I walk throughout my day, you know, I, I pray for us. I pray for you. You know, the Lord continually brings, uh, you know, to my mind, somebody uh, in the body or in my life. And, and I just want to stop right then and just pray for that person. You know, the other day while I was praying during my devotion time, the Lord brought to mind a certain woman. And as I began to pray for her, you know, I grabbed my phone and I texted her letting her know that I was praying for her, that Jesus loved her. And I offered a Bible verse that I felt that the Lord put on my heart for her. You know, and the next day, she texted me back, telling me how much it meant to her. You know, it it was something that she really needed to hear at that very moment, she said. You know, she said that she was facing a difficult time in her life. And it was just comforting to know that the Lord put her on my heart, put her on anybody's heart, and that somebody was lifting her up in prayer. You know, that's, that's what the Lord will do in us and through us as we give ourselves to prayer. And Jesus is our example in everything, and He's our example in the discipline of prayer too. Many times in the gospel, we see Jesus, you know, just getting away to pray. Early in His ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we read, now in the morning, having risen along While uh, before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And as the story unfolds, we're told that Peter and the boys, you know, they're searching for Jesus. They didn't know where he was, and when they found him, you know, Peter says, "'Hey, you know, what are you doing? Everybody's looking for you.'" And Jesus said to them, "'Let us go into the next town, right, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth.'" Jesus received direction regarding what the Father wanted Him to do through prayer. Right before Jesus made a decision of who, uh, that He would call to Himself to be the 12 apostles, you know, what He prayed all night. You know, we read in Luke 10, verse 12, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that He went out, to the mountain to pray, and continued all night to pray to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostle. Jesus received wisdom from the Father through prayer. You know, if you're making decisions without taking it to the Lord in prayer, then all you're doing is just relying on your own wisdom, your own, uh, you know, insights into this situation. You're really just being self-reliant. You know, two different places in the Proverbs, we, we read that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death, right? I don't know about you, but that's a path I don't want to travel on. You know what? Proverbs 3 and five, three, five and 6 says exactly the opposite. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your path. You know, going to the Lord in prayer with every decision is trusting Him for an answer. You know, leaning not on your own understanding and acknowledging Him is, is uh, in all your ways. Acknowledging Him in all your ways. That only happens in prayer. That's the only place that can happen. And the promise is that God will direct us. He'll give us wisdom. He'll He'll meet the need. James says, James 5.16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, prayer has the power to move mountains. Why would we not engage in it more? You know, when when we're in close com- communication with the Lord, when we're in constant communion with the Lord, constant conversation with the Lord, you know what he does? He, he ministers to us, you know. He He uses us also to minister to people. You know, he meets our needs and he uses us to meet other people's needs. Right? Paul wrote to the church of Philippi instructing them to be anxious for, for nothing but in all things, um, you know, uh, but in everything, in every circumstance, every situation by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your requests known. Let your requests be known to God. And the promise, if we'll do this, follows in the very next verse, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, one of my um, all time favorite hymns, you know, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And you know what it says it says, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and grief to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer goes on, Oh what peace we often forfeit, Oh what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I mean I love that song. Not only does 1 Thessalonians 5:17 say, uh, pray without ceasing, You know, not only is it a command for believers, but the Bible teaches that prayerlessness is a sin. Samuel said to the nation of Israel, 1 Samuel 12, 23, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Prayerlessness, the neglect of this great privilege afforded to us, Samuel said, is simply just, just a sin. Well, Not only are we instructed to rejoice, always pray without ceasing, we're also instructed, verse 18, in everything to give thanks. Spurgeon said, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. I love that. Right? You know, the thanksgiving, I think it's a fruit of gratitude. Thanksgiving is the natural fruit of joy. Uh... The expression of the heart and prayer directed towards a good, merciful, and gracious God, right? In the believer's life, there's always something to be thankful for, even in the darkest day, right? There are blessings to be counted. Again, somebody would say, well, what do you have to be thankful for in light of your circumstances? Well, again, the fact that we're on our way to heaven is one very good reason, I think, to give God thanks in every situation, right? Because no matter how bad things are, it's not going to have the final word in our lives, right? The best is yet to come, right? Things that we can be thankful for as believers in spite of our circumstances, you know, by the world's standards, you know, Americans are among the wealthiest in the world. It's amazing. I mean, I've had the privilege of, of ministering in underprivileged countries. And I tell you what, it doesn't matter how much money you make. If you're an American, you got food in your refrigerator, you got any amount of money in your pocket or in a bank account or in a change purse on your nightstand, you know what? You're wealthy. God has provided for our daily needs. You know, food, clothing. We have a warm bed to sleep in at night. You know, God's provided us the very air that we breathe. And God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sins. We should be thankful. We should be thankful on a daily basis. Right? For the goodness of God, the mercy of God. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, it says in the Psalms. Right? He's not given us what we deserve, judgment and hell. Right? But instead we receive on a daily basis the grace of God. He gives to us the things that we don't deserve. His love, his forgiveness, his unmerited favor, right? His patience. I'm so thankful for patience. God hasn't washed his hands of me, right? He calls us his sons and daughters. Giving thanks to God is just acknowledging the things that come from God. All that we have, you know, comes from God alone. Oh, there are things that we can't earn that come from God, right? Things that we don't deserve come from God to give thanks for everything. means that we're to thank God not only for the great things, but for the small things. Not only for the rare things, the occasional things, but also for the common things. Not only for the present things, but also for the past mercies that we've enjoyed and our future hope of heaven that we're headed towards. Right? And the more we fix our eyes on heaven, the greater thanks, the greater amount of thanks are going to flow from our hearts. Now, I don't dare to speak for you, but I'm overwhelmed with how good God has been towards me. Words fail uh, you know, to express you know, just how wonderful, how amazing, how marvelous, how, how astonishing God has been to me. His inexpressible goodness towards me. Not only does he love me, you know, when I was unlovable, which, you know, most of the time is what I am, but he's demonstrated his love for me. While I was yet a sinner, he sent Christ to die for me. While I was still in my sin, you know, he sent Christ to die for me in hopes that I would choose a relationship with him. He gave his life with no guarantees that I would respond. That's how much he loved me. You know, I'm thankful that there's nothing that can ever or will ever separate me from that great love. Right? Nothing, no power on earth, nothing that the devil can throw at me. God's love for me is so great. There's nothing I can do to mess up that relationship and to cause him to stop loving me. Right? He loves me with an everlasting love, an unchanging love. And what that means is that if he's ever loved me, he will always love me. Right? He loved me enough to die for me. He's always going to love me. Right? And, that, and he loves me so much that he can't take his eyes off me, believe it or not. I'm the apple of his eyes. Right? He loves me so much. He's attentive to me, to the situations that I'm facing. And he's promised to see me through all of them to the end. I'm thankful that his love for me is so great that his plans for me are good plans. They're good plans, plans for a future, for a hope. He's working in me. He's watching over me. There's no place that I can go that's out of his sight or out of his reach. No place so far away that his good plans for me aren't able to work in my situation. Those are the reasons that I love the Lord and I'm thankful and rejoicing in Him. But those are reasons that are true in your life too. Those are things that are working in your lives, right? And there are some people would say, well, Gary, hold on a second, okay? I mean, you shouldn't say these things in in public, right? It'll give people the impression that they can do anything and God will still accept them. The truth is this, you can do anything and God will still accept you. Wait a minute, Gary. Pump the brakes here. I mean, you know, what you're saying is that, uh, you know, it's going to lead people into a life of sin, right? I mean, they're going to they're live a sinful life thinking that God will still love them. The truth is, it doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter what you do. God is still going to love you. But His love for us is the motivation not to sin, Right? Being set free is to live, you know, with a desire to live for God in such a way to say no to sin. To live in such a way that's pleasing to Him. You know, His unconditional love motivates me to live a life that's pleasing to Him. To say no to sin. Right? And I make it my aim to live for Him in such a way that pleases Him. You know, I'm thankful that my life is in his hands and there's no weapon formed against me that's gonna prosper, that he'll allow to prosper. I'm thankful because God has lavished his grace upon all of us, all of those that love him. you know, we don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his grace. But that's what grace is all about, isn't it? It's great, you know, receiving that which I don't deserve. Psalm 68, 19 says this. Blessed be the Lord, and this is this is important part, who daily loads us with benefits. The God of our salvation, Selah. You know what? When I read that verse, in my mind, I, I think strange things. But in my mind, I just see a donkey loaded down with so much. One more thing, that donkey is going to collapse under the weight of the load. And that's the way the Lord... Loads blessings and benefits upon us. I'm that donkey. You know what? I'm that donkey. And very respectfully, may I say, you're that donkey. (laughs) You're the donkey. And then the psalmist, he says, Selah. Think about that. Take time to meditate on this, right? Without a thankful heart, I'm never going to notice the blessings and benefits that God has bestowed upon me right? If all I do is complain about my circumstances, murmur and grumble about my situation, I'll never be able to see the goodness of God. Complaining and murmuring and grumbling literally blinds us to the goodness of God. Belly aching over my lot in life, Which, believe me, again, could be a whole lot worse. But just griping and expressing this woe is me kind of attitude will cause me to overlook the riches that I have in Christ Jesus, right? It will cause us to live as paupers instead of living like sons and daughters of the King of Kings, which is what we are right? The ability to give thanks in all things is to understand that in all circumstances, our blessings outnumber and outweigh our troubles, right? If we set our sights on the circumstances, the situations and the troubles that we face, you know what? We will, without a doubt, we will miss out on the innumerable blessings that come our way on a daily, bless, uh, daily basis. Giving thanks in all things, it's only possible through faith and seeing the troubles that God has allowed it to, to enter into our lives as blessings in disguise, right? Every, everything that the enemy designs or intends for evil in our lives, God has this miraculous ability to turn it around for the good, right? Praise and thanksgiving directed to our Savior, should do away with all complaints, right? In every circumstance, enjoying sorrow, for everything, prosperity and adversity, in every place, whether we're in the house of God or in a bed of sickness and adversity, thankfulness is called for simply because God is good to us, right? Thankfulness will also keep us from pride. It keeps us humble because it focuses our attention on what God has done for us instead of falling for this lie that what we are is a result of what I've done. You know what? I've worked hard. I've pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I've done it. You can do it too, right? You know, all the things that I've accomplished because of how smart I am and how hardworking I am. You know what? But thankfulness keeps us from embracing this lie that we've arrived and are somehow worthy of praise ourselves, right? Paul says the reality is this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. All that I am, all that I ever hope to be, it's all because of God. Thankfulness reminds us uh, of our dependence on God for everything. Thankfulness keeps us humble. And when we cease to be thankful, for what God has done in our lives, we run the risk of forgetting that it was God who's done great things in our lives. And it makes us vulnerable to falling away from the Lord. Well, why should we? Why should I? Why should you rejoice always and pray without ceasing and everything, give thanks? Because Paul says this is the will of God for, for you in Christ Jesus, right? The three exhortations that we see here in First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 are not just good advice. Do you understand that? It's not just good advice, right? It's not something that we can choose to engage in if we're feeling it, you know. This is God's will for each of us. This is God's will for Christians, right? It's not the entirety of God's will for you and I, but it's a very important part of His will for us. God's will... For those who are in Christ Jesus is to rejoice, is to pray, and is to give thanks, right? And God will never will something that is beyond our ability to accomplish in Him, right? Telling, telling us this is His will for us is saying that He's given us the ability to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be joyful or full of joy, to pray without ceasing or praying always in every situation and to uh, be thankful always, you know, in every circumstance. It's something that we can do. It's what God desires for us. It's what he desires uh, us to be engaged in because he knows that this is the best thing for us. Right? We have so much to be thankful for. So at the end of this Thanksgiving week, you know, what are you thankful for? You know, Thanksgiving is a time, uh, you know, you guys know we were missionaries for such a very long in foreign countries. And, uh, you know, I, ask, I tell people, hey, you know what? We're celebrating Thanksgiving this Thursday. What about you guys? You guys celebrate? I'm joking. But I'd say, what about you guys? You guys celebrate Thanksgiving? No. Like, oh, you don't, you're not thankful? You have nothing to be thankful for? We have so much to be thankful for, and it's worth meditating on. What are you thankful for? There's actually so much to be thankful for that we'll spend eternity expressing our thanks and praise to God. Do you understand that? We sang about it. Eternity. So much to be thankful for. Eternity isn't long enough to worship the God that has been so good to us, so gracious towards us, so kind and so loving um, of us, you know. It's not enough time to express the thanksgiving and the joy that we receive from following the Lord, each of us, uh, in our lives, right? Rejoicing always, living a life of constant communion with the Father, and giving God thanks in every situation. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us all. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you so much for your revealed will to us, Lord. Lord. It's not something that we have to guess at. It's not something that we have to, you know, uh, throw a dart at and hope we hit the bullseye. Lord, just spell it out for us. Lord, and there are so many reasons to rejoice, so many reasons to be thankful, and so many reasons to pray. And to just ask, Lord, for wisdom, vision, direction, and to be used by you for your glory in this world. We give you praise, Jesus, in your name. Amen.